In the past week, Canada's Liberals swooped to power. Countries around the world mark the 70th anniversary of the adoption of the UN Charter, and Israel and Jordan strike a deal to reduce tensions in Jerusalem. It's Sunday the 24th of October 2015, and you're listening to the Oxford International Relations Society podcast, The Beacon. Hello and welcome to The Beacon. I'm your host, Will Yeldon. Our focus this week is on the European refugee crisis. The International Organisation for Migration calls Europe the most dangerous destination for irregular migration in the world. Nevertheless, it estimates that more than 464,000 migrants have crossed into Europe by sea for the first nine months of 2015. Syrian refugees fleeing their country's four-and-a-half-year-old civil war make up the largest group, around 39%. Yet despite this escalating human toll, the European Union's collective response to this current crisis has been ad hoc, and many have said more focused on securing the bloc's borders than on protecting the rights of migrants and refugees. However, with nationalist parties ascendant in many member states and concerns about Islamic terrorism looming large across the continent, it remains unclear if the bloc or its member states are capable of implementing any lasting asylum and immigration reforms. There has also been strong division within the European Union between Western countries such as Germany, France and Sweden and Eastern European states who have declared themselves much more selective about which refugees they are willing to help. For example, Hungary, Poland, Slovakia and the Czech Republic have all recently expressed a strong preference for non-Muslim migrants. While selecting refugees based on religion is in clear violation of the EU's non-discrimination laws, these leaders have defended their policies by pointing to their own constituencies' discomfort with growing Muslim communities. By contrast, Germany and Sweden have unveiled some of the most generous asylum policies in the EU. The most recent clash between East and West came when European governments, principally Germany, forced through a deal to impose a refugee quota sharing 120,000 people between them in a watershed decision that several states bitterly opposed. The decision to overrule opponents in the newer states of Central Europe was highly unusual and perceived as an assault on their sovereignty by the Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia, all of whom voted against the motion. How can the international community best alleviate the plight of refugees? And does this disunity between East and West reflect deeper problems within the European Union itself? To examine these questions in more detail, Alfie Shaw spoke to Professor Dawn Chatty, Professor Chatty is Emerita Professor of Anthropology and Forced Migration and former Director of the Refugee Studies Centre here in Oxford. She has also worked for the United Nations Development Programme, UNICEF, and the International Fund for Agricultural Development. Professor Chatty, thank you for joining us. I'd like to start by asking you how you think we should conceptualise the crisis. There's a divide in the media between those describing it as the refugee crisis and those describing it as a migrant crisis. Which is it? Well, you're right, there is a divide in the media but I think it's also plagued to people's emotions. It's both. There is a migrant crisis. It's been building up for quite some time. Uh, it is exacerbated by the fall of Libya because it was being controlled through bilateral agreements with countries on the uh, southern rim of the Mediterranean, such as Gaddafi and Morocco and so on, holding back people who we would classify as economic migrants. However, the big crisis the real humanitarian, political, ethical, and moral crisis is a refugee crisis. Um, it's a crisis in our failure to provide asylum for people fleeing armed conflict, fleeing persecution, uh, fleeing death, um, and so on. As a result of the mass arrivals in Europe, 
The media has been distracted from the refugee crisis in Syrian neighbour countries such as Lebanon, uh, where, the, where one in four, in four people is a refugee. How urgent is the plight of that country and what should be done to reduce its burden? Well, the situation in the region is very complicated because the, large, the larger percentage of people from Syria who've taken refuge in Lebanon or in Turkey or in Jordan do not wish to move on. They are trying to sit it out until such a time as they can return. And for similar reasons, they have, many of them have refused to register with refugee agencies because they don't consider themselves refugees. They consider themselves Syrians waiting for a chance to go back when conditions allow. However, the situation there was really unsustainable. Even in Turkey, it, was, it has become unsustainable because so little aid was actually extended in providing what I'm going to call survival indignity. In other words, providing uh, some kind of cash transfer so that people could feed their families since they're not allowed to work, they're not allowed to create their own incomes, also providing some kind of educational opportunities for their young families and health care as well. And as the months and now the years of war on, war on many are, have become desperate, but uh, they don't represent the largest percentage of those who are reaching European shores. I think what I need to really make very clear is the largest percentage of those who are reaching European shores are people leaving Syria now, or for the last few months, but certainly now, finding they have no other way of getting to Europe other than to find a smuggler to take them in, because there is no way to apply for temporary protection or asylum in the eastern or southern Mediterranean itself. So you mentioned how Syrian refugees see themselves as people who are waiting to return to Syria. So after the end of the Syrian civil war, It'll be many years before people are able and willing to return to their home country. Do you think that refugees residing in Europe should be naturalised? And what do you think should be done to speed Syria's post-war development? I think there are very few Syrians who are in Europe now who want to be naturalised. In fact, I've just come back from France, where I've met a number of Syrians, many of who struggled for over a year to get temporary protection, meaning the right to work. These are doctors and nurses who had been trained in France, speak French, have French certificates... And for a year, the French government was insisting that if they stayed in the country, they had to stay as refugees, which means, first of all, a long period of not being allowed to work, a long period of being forced to be on welfare, and also a very uncomfortable positioning whereby that status could become known by the Syrian um, internal security, which means impossibility of returning. Those who I met eventually, after a year's struggle, were able to get temporary protection, which means just a permit to work so that they can support themselves. And that, I would say, represents the majority of Syrians, especially those who have some skills. They want to be able to be safe, to provide their children with education for the next generation, but then to return when conditions permit. And for many Syrians, conditions permitting doesn't necessarily mean the removal of Assad, but it means the end of the fighting. So we've spoken a lot about Syria so far, and it's clear that by no means all the refugees arriving in Europe are Syrian. Do you think that policy responses should differentiate on grounds of nationality, and if so, how? No, I don't. I think the, the policy which the Western nations adopted after 1951, particularly when they signed the 1951 uh, Convention um, on the Rights of Refugees, very clearly stated that in terms of international law, we have a right to provide asylum, or at least to consider the asylum request for those uh, fleeing uh, persecution generally through uh, cases of armed conflict. So we should be looking at the, the, the Afghan, the Eritrean, the Syrian. I mean, these are the three big countries producing uh, refugees who are fleeing armed conflict or 
incredibly inhumane conditions, such as in Eritrea, where the um, uh, obligatory military service now extends up to, well, it's unending. Mm-hmm. Could be two decades, three decades, could be even longer. So on the note of uh, international law, the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, has been criticised for saying, quote, we do not want a large number of Muslim people in our country. Is the fear of cultural mixing legitimate? And is it right that countries select those to whom they provide asylum on cultural grounds? Absolutely not. I think uh, Viktor's statement suggests that he doesn't know Hungary's history. You really only have to go back to the end of World War I to recognise that, that Hungary was part of the Habsburg Empire, and it was a multi-ethnic Empire, just as the Ottoman Empire was as well, and that the unmixing of peoples, which started from around the mid-1850s uh, but continued until the end of World War I, was not the natural state of play. Uh, it became artificial, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why the Eastern uh, European bloc uh, have been so negative, because they, they're all, what I'm going to call, single ethnicities now, created artificially at the end of the great empires. No, I think his position in this day and age, in this global day and age, a state that is only one nation is really anachronistic. It's not going to survive into the 21st century. So another country in the, in the region that's taken a very similar stance is Macedonia, which only 20 years ago had a, a refugee population of half a million and an overall population of two million. So why do you think it is, in slightly more detail following on from your answer before, that countries that formerly had a very close relationship with refugees and in many ways were formed by immigrants now have such a kind of closed borders policy? Well, I think in in Macedonia's case, they had a large number of forced uh, forced migrants being thrown out of places like Serbia, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and so on. Um, And they recognize, you know, the the huge burden on their economy. And they're taking a position, a negative position, because they they want more international assistance. And I think we should all be thinking that as well. uh, unfortunately, so much of our aid budget, certainly in the UK, DFID, is going to the what, what we call the moderate opposition, which is a term that I think also is, is quite complex. It isn't actually really going to aid and to assist the UN, uh, the, the international agencies dealing with humanitarian issues to any great extent. And so it's not surprising. I think you probably know that the World uh, Food Programme has had to cut its budget. They had not had enough money coming in. There have been pledges, but very few of the pledges have been honoured. And just last month they announced that now at this point they could only provide families with $13.5 a month to feed a family of six. Well, it can't be done. Mm. Um, there, there are issues of, of corruption. There are issues of huge amounts of overheads that are going into a lot of the programming, but very little money uh, cash transfer or assistance really is, is getting to the people who need it. So on the note of um, the provision of assistance, the British government's been criticised for its decision to accept 20,000 refugees over the next five years, whilst Germany received 14,000 refugees in a weekend. This response has been balanced by an increase in support for those residing in refugee camps. Is that response appropriate? No, it certainly isn't. Let's think, where are there refugee camps that the international system, that Europe, is providing assistance for? Well, they're only in Jordan. And the main camp is Zatari camp, uh, which is more like an open-air prison. Uh, most people try to avoid going to Zatari camp. It now houses 80,000 people, but at the time that I visited it, it had 140,000 people crammed into this place. They're not allowed to leave, completely encircled by barbed wire to prevent them from leaving. The only way to get out was to get a people smuggler to get you out or to, to buy a Jordanian um, uh, kafala uh, sponsorship. There are, no, there are no refugee camps in Lebanon, 
none. There are maybe uh, a thousand small settlements where people have have um, taken upon themselves to settle on the outskirts of a town or a village. And in Turkey, yes, you have 25 refugee camps at this time that are funded entirely by the Turkish government, and they are five-star camps, according to the ICJ, who visited them. These are camps that do not imprison people. The refugees are allowed to come in and out, and they're allowed to work. They're also allowed to leave for periods of two to three weeks at a time if they need to go back to Syria to check on their elderly parents, who most of the elderly generation refused to leave. Um, and that, none of that money would go to Turkey, the Turkish refugee camps. So it's going to go to Jordan. Well, Jordan has, what, 80,000 people in a refugee camp? Is that really appropriate? What about those who really need assistance outside of the camps? So you mentioned Lebanon mm-hmm. uh, again. We've seen over the last two years a kind of proxy conflict developing in Lebanon between native Lebanese people and Syrian refugees. How pressing do you think the risk of these kind of proxy conflicts developing in other countries is, and what can we do to prevent it? Well, you're the political scientists or international relations people. You know that the consociational government uh, or, or political system of Lebanon is extraordinarily complex. Uh, really, the separation of Lebanon from Syria, which was meant to have taken place in the 1920s, was never really complete. There was no border defined between Lebanon and Syria until the U.S. government insisted upon it in 2005. The Lebanese and Syrians can move back and forth between the two countries without visas. And until the breakout of this particular crisis, Lebanon received half a million Syrian workers in the construction industry and in the agricultural industry. So the Lebanese basic economy was built on Syrian unskilled and you could say skilled labor. And many of the 1.1 million are not just these laborers now, but their families. So they're not really strangers to Lebanon whatsoever. The, the, the greater complexity in Lebanon is that you've got two different movements. You've got the March, I think it's the March 14th and the March 8th, half, so half of that political spectrum is supporting Assad and the other half is not. But this is Lebanon. It's always been there and I don't think it's going to collapse, but this complexity is going to remain. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about Jordan, about the criminalisation of refugees, how the refugee camp is more of an open-air prison. Turkey, Greece, Bulgaria, Macedonia and Hungary have responded to the refugee crisis by erecting fences on their borders. Are we seeing the collapse of the Schengen area? Uh, Perhaps yes, in terms of the Schengen, but Turkey isn't obliged by the Schengen. Um, It did erect uh, fences mainly on its southern border, But most of these fences, and I sound like an apologist for Turkey, and I'm sorry for that, but I do admire what Turkey has done, whatever its political reasoning was. These were meant to hold back uh, Syrians until they were ready to receive them, rather than uh, to keep them out forever. So they they do erect fences, they do prevent uh, people from coming across until they're ready, but also they're they're quite worried about the the, the representation of ISIS. But Schengen, you know what? Uh, Schengen is about free movement throughout Europe. What's really collapsing is the Dublin Accords, Dublin 1, 2, 3, because the uh, insistence that the first country uh, that you land in is the country where you have to um, request asylum is, is really grossly misconceived. If you have a 17-year-old Syrian boy whose mother and father have just been killed, but he's got an older brother who's a doctor in Nottingham, there's no way for him to get to England except by going through other countries. And most of the time, he does find a way 
and I, I'm, this is an actual case, of getting as far as Calais. And, but from Calais, he's got to get across to join his older brother who wants him. But they don't want to wait the two or three years that it might take in order to do some sort of family reunification. And uh, this boy was actually interviewed, and somebody said to him, why don't you just ask for asylum in France? And his answer was, well, first of all, my brother is in England, and I speak English, not French, and I want to be with my brother. But I have no way of asking for asylum in Calais. I've got to get across the channel, and then I can ask for asylum. So in many ways, Dublin 123 doesn't work, and it has to be rethought. So specifically, is the misconception with the Dublin Accords that the idea of arriving at the first safe country is false, that it should be the first country where you have some kind of stability as a refugee and you can adopt a life that's more appropriate? Yes, or it should be at least assessed. Perhaps in the first country where you land, it should be assessed, but you shouldn't then, therefore, have to stay in that country. If you have no contact... You know, if you do, you know you don't know anybody in Italy, you don't speak Italian, but you've got uh, you know uh, brothers or cousins or grandparents in in Sweden or in Germany, which is very likely because of the the long labor migration from the 1970s to both these countries. I mean, so many um, Syrian Kurds, for example, uh, emigrated during that time, and they've got relatives, and these are the relatives that are trying to reach them. That's one of the reasons why Germany and Sweden have such high numbers as well. It's emerged within the last hour that the German government is pressing for compulsory EU asylum quotas. Do you think that this is a positive policy response to the crisis? And if implemented, how will the coercion involved affect the long-term future of the EU? Well, that's really problematic. I don't think anything coercive lasts for a long time. I think Germany has to find a way of persuading the other countries of Europe to accept larger numbers. And that includes the UK. I mean, it's laughable that the UK was going to accept... 20,000 over five years. When you consider that not very long ago, a decade ago or 15 years ago, the UK accepted 75,000 Bosnians in one year, we have the capacity. And this is, temp- this is about temporary protection. We have the capacity. We should be doing that again. And I think there is a growing grassroots response now to insist that Cameron has to change those figures. So many political commentators have observed that we should be accepting migrants in Britain refugees in Britain, not solely for humanitarian reasons, but for the economic uh, benefits that they would bring. Do you think that's a valid argument? I think that is a secondary argument, but it is also valid. We perhaps, uh, perhaps the United Kingdom doesn't have that same decline in, uh, in demography that Germany does in Sweden, where they absolutely need the labour. But that basic argument can be made throughout, that these are ageing populations here, and they need to have more, more of a working force, a younger working force. But It's a secondary argument, as I said. I think you're going to find that most Syrians who do receive temporary protection in this country will go back as soon as conditions allow. So to broaden our conversation slightly, we've spoken a lot about the refugee crisis at the moment. Do you think that a policy response should focus on the countries to which refugees are arriving, or do you think that we should be addressing the problem at its source? We should do both. And quite frankly, the United Kingdom and the US are complicit in the crisis. This crisis in Syria is a direct outgrowth of the 2003 invasion, the collapse of the civil society in Iraq, the refusal to complete the task of of re-engaging the Iraqi population, the allowing really of uh, the al-Qaeda to move out of Iraq to take shelter in Syria. In fact, it's quite interesting because Bashar al-Assad arrested 2,000 of the al-Qaeda from Iraq originally, but with all the very, very clever, very, very deviously in 2000, at the end of 2012, uh, he released them all, saying, you want me to release political prisoners? Here they are. Mm-hmm. And they then really were the backbone of the ISIS state. 
Baghdadi, all of them were taking shelter in Syria. They were hidden away. So I think that um, we certainly need to look at the problem at its source. We need to do something about that. We should be engaged in now, unfortunately, much more with Russia and Iran, uh, as well as Saudi Arabia and Turkey, and probably leaving countries out as well, China. I mean, this is an international war. Mm -hmm. This is an international proxy war. And it needs all the players to be involved in order to have some sort of resolution. We're not going to come to a transitional political settlement without all the players being involved. We have to do that. And at the same time, we have to recognize that as long as this bombing is taking place, these are civilians that are being bombed. They're going to be fleeing. They're going to be huge numbers more fleeing into Europe. And we have to provide them with at least some sort of temporary shelter. Where's our humanity gone? Press Chassie, I'd like to ask you one final question. Um, it's likely that our listeners will be early in their careers when the Syrian civil war comes to an end. What advice do you have for those hoping to work in post-conflict societies as displaced people start to return? I think the most important lesson, and here I'm an anthropologist speaking, but I think you have to understand the historical context. You have to understand the roots of the conflict and how that impacts various ethnic groups, ethno-religious groups and so on. Without that understanding, you really cannot fix the problem. Professor Chatty, thank you for joining us for this episode of The Beacon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Alfie Shaw speaking to Professor Dawn Chatty. Next, I looked at Pentecost, the upcoming show in fourth week at the Oxford Playhouse. It's by David Edgar and discusses many of the themes Alfie and Professor Chatty were talking about. Here to speak about the show is Freya Judd, its director. Thank you very much for joining us, Freya. Um, firstly, could you outline the narrative of Pentecost and how, in your mind, it relates to the ongoing refugee crisis? So Pentecost is a very complex play. Um, I'm very aware of that, but I think that actually the University of Oxford is probably the best place to put on this play right now. And it has several different strands. One of the main strands is talking about Renaissance art um, and the development of Renaissance art and the history of civilization. And people really think that that isn't at all related to the second strand of narrative, which is about refugees. They come in and they take this church hostage. And essentially, the overall plot follows a group of art historians in Eastern Europe who find a mural that looks like it could redefine the history of civilization. And they squabble over who gets to own the mural, what its true origins are. And then at the end of the first act, a group of mixed desperate refugees fleeing various conflicts across Europe and across the Middle East come and take the art historians and the mural hostage. Are you having any worries about how to sensibly portray refugees, refugee crisis? I know you've certainly had some problems with casting in finding a refugee diverse cast in Oxford. Well, I, I think we all know that Oxford is not the most ethnically diverse place, and it was very much uh, an alarm bell in my yeah. mind when we started putting on the play, and I was absolutely sure that I wanted to make sure we had accurate ethnic portrayals. And for that reason, we have what most student drama productions don't have. We have a dramaturg, and the role of a dramaturg is a drama historian, and what they do is they come on into a production, and they do a lot of very detailed research into each of the characters and into their ethnic backgrounds. So we have characters, for example, a Palestinian Kuwaiti, and we have very carefully gone through her background, gone through her life story, and made sure that we can portray it in a kind of as sensitive a way as possible. And we've spoken, when we come to the languages, we've spoken to people that speak Azeri, we've recorded mm. the Polish and the Hungarian to make sure that we have this accurate representation. And we've been very careful in the language we use, because in the in the play, characters call the Roma people gypsies. But actually, some of our research, right at the start of the rehearsal process, we got the whole cast to do some research. And what that really threw up was that gypsies is actually, it's a very offensive word to call someone a gypsy. In fact, they're Romani people or traveling people. So bringing language like that, understanding characters yeah. like that, is something that we've been kind of implementing in our rehearsal process from the very beginning. And I think 
talking to talking to groups like Skin Deep, talking to groups like the um, Oxford Refugee Programme, and making sure that we really root our portrayals in research and we don't just portray a kind of stereotype. That's been very important for us, and I hope you succeed. Definitely. And um, if we broaden this discussion out, what would you say is the general role of culture, popular culture, and theatre productions, photography, media as well, in galvanising popular response to the refugee crisis? I think it's really key, and I think the birth of the internet has been a fantastic way of promoting promoting crises, promoting political struggles, kind of engaging people, widening people's understanding. So, for example, we're putting on Pentecost, which is a play written in 1995 about the refugee crisis that arose out of the Balkan conflicts and that arose out of the decline of communism and the opening up of Europe in the 1990s. But it's incredibly relevant today, and I felt when I was putting it on, I very much wanted to start people talking about that. And, of course... Groups like Humans of New York, they, he, the, the guy that does Humans in New York, went across to Kos and to Calais and started to take photos and promote the individual stories of refugees to make sure that we understand that each person does have an individual story. And I think wider than that, kind of art and culture has a very important role to play in, in talking about political issues and getting people talking and engaging and telling stories that make people think. And I think there are lots of great examples of this. There are the Basin plays, tribunal plays. I think online sources like Facebook and Tumblr, they do a great job of spreading stories. And I think, you know, if we can engage with people on a level that will entertain them, but also inform them, I think that's the best way to kind of promote this. Right, well, thank you very much, Brett. Pentecost is showing at the Oxford Playhouse in Fourth Week, and I, for one, am very much looking forward to seeing it. Well, that's it for this week. What are your thoughts? Do get involved by visiting our website, www.oxirsoc.com, Facebook page and Twitter feeds, and comment to keep the debate going. Similarly, we are currently accepting both submissions for our termly print journal of Sir on the theme barriers and more general blog articles. So for more information, do visit the website or email sir-editor at irsoc.org. Special thanks to our speakers, Professor Dawn Chatty and Freya Judd, for taking the time to speak with us. And also to our sponsors, Morgan Stanley, John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the University of Kent, for making the show possible. Please note that any opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the speakers and hosts and do not in any way represent Oxford International Relations Society as a whole. Next week, we'll be focusing upon Russia, looking at its actions in Ukraine and relationship with China and the West. I do hope you can join us then. Goodbye.